Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This week's rom crime is brought to you by the essential bartender, Avern Mackey. Link to her online bar in the description. What's up, girl? Hi. Hi, I'm Vanya. I'm the Rom. And I'm Avrin, and I'm the crime. And, and this is Rom Crime. <laughs> this is our true crime comedy podcast that has romantic um, bombing. No, romantic color. No, romantic. Uh, I'm happy. No, romantic. I'm sad. No, manic, manic, manic. Debra. Rom- romantic explosions. I like it. Romantic heists. Ooh, that's good. Yes, because today we're doing the most diabolical bank heist, apparently. In all of history. Also, I just think it's so funny. Anytime you hear about something happening in Erie, Pennsylvania, I'm like, well, duh. You named the town Erie. Like, ooh, shit's going to happen there. Right? No, I think you're totally right. Um, Hey, Av, this week I thought it'd be fun because we're on, I don't know, week fucking excuse my language everybody i'm just it's 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 intense man we're in the quarantine we're in the pandemic and it's maybe week seven on 10 12 8 i don't know i'm on my second period so i'm not sure what does that mean um me too that's so random (laughs) sorry guys spoiler alert but we're bleeding for the second time wobbing at home (laughs) i'm so ragey but no i thought it'd be funny to do um two positives to keep it positive and a suck like you know okay so um, if it's okay. You want to go first? Yeah, I will. Okay. So my, my positive number one is, guess what? This week, this bitch got some Costco toilet paper. Whoop, 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 whoop. I mean, I can't even tell you. I waited in line. I had like gloves on. I had a face mask on. I had like goggles on because I'm a crazy person. Stood six feet away. Uh, living in Los Angeles, whenever you go to Costco, and honestly, anywhere in the country, it's, it's a shit show and people are just insane. But I will say, once I got inside, it was kind of lovely because people were staying really, they didn't let, they left, the, excuse me, they let probably like a third of the people they normally let in. Um, so it was really great. The only creepy thing is, is like when you get towards the meat and like the dairy and back there where the toilet paper is, there was like speakers going off um, just on repeat. It felt very like Hunger Games-ish. I don't know where it was like, you know, keep social distance. I wish I remember, but I'd like to block things out that scare me. So it scared me. Okay. My second positive. 
second positive is um, that my two-year-old son took his first nap since March 13th today. And that is no joke. Wow. That's a good one. Like yeah. a legit nap. Yeah. I put him down at 1.30. He got up at 3.30. And I was like, <gasps> I know. And I was able to get some things done. My daughter, I let her play a video game and she sat next to me while I edited a podcast. And it was actually pretty incredible. I was like amazing. stressed the whole time because I can't let myself enjoy anything, but it was really, it was great. It's positive. Here's my suck. Here's my suck. Uh, I'm sure there's more, but I'm just going to choose one that's the most fresh in my mind. But today I touched poop thrice. That's three times I touched poop. That was not my own. And even if it was my own, be gross. But my son pooped three times and it was just like everywhere each time. Eee. He's two and he's gross. And I washed my hands for like, 40 seconds with like boiling water. So my hands are killing me. But anyways, how about you, Ev? Wow. All right. <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to follow your lead and say that one of my um, hoorays was that you gifted me some of your Kirkland toilet paper. Yay! So I now know the magic of the Costco brand. Oh. I dropped it off and weren't you just, do you, like, it's one roll. It will last you over a week. I promise. It's incredible. It's awesome. I'm so excited. It's I, soft, all, not too soft. It's no. perfect. It's like, <laughs> it's the perfect toilet paper for those picky about their TP. Um, I think the second hooray, I have to say, uh, was, so this was the third week since starting the Essential Bartender that I like put out new tutorials in a video and the response that I have gotten so far has just been unbelievably humbling and overwhelming. And I'm filled with immense gratitude. Like also your, got, your videos are so fun. Oh my God. Like I was a bartender for 10 years. This is absolutely no lie, but I'm still learning shit and I'm fucking loving it. It's so great. By the way, my mom wants you to do a lemon drop. So just, Oh, great. Done and done. I was thinking yeah. it was time to do, a couple of like the, the, the martinis that people know from like TV shows. So I was like, yeah. I should do a Cosmo. Yes. <clears throat> I should do a lemon drop. I should do like a flirtini or, you know, mm. the things that people are like, what was that one drink from that one show? Yes. Um, so yeah, it's just been unbelievably overwhelming and it, it fills my heart. It's been funny trying to like fake, not fake, real bartend, but bartend, you know, without any of the actual equipment that you're used to. Yeah. Or and the ice. Cause you mentioned the ice a lot. Yeah. Well, the ice is very different, you know, like that ice from a giant machine in a restaurant is not, it's, it's a little bit wetter. Yeah. A little less assholic when you yeah. kind of like deal with it versus the stuff, you know, that you pull out of an ice tray and you're like, why are you so frozen? Yeah. Thank God I haven't tried anything blended yet. Right. Uh, I can't wait. That'll be like a hundred years. I'm like, it's just the ice, guys. Just give it yeah. A <laughs> um, and then I guess my suck would be, um, I still haven't received my government stimulus <sighs> payout, and my husband did. So yeah. I'm, you know, doing all the things that they tell you to do online to be like, where is it? And mm -hmm. all I keep getting from the IRS is like, uh, payment status unavailable at this time. And so I went through all of the things like, why would I not be eligible? That's not the case. I'm thinking it's because I just filed my taxes for 2019 on April 15th, which I think I should get mad props for. You we should. We got a three-month extension, and I straight up filed my taxes on time on tax day. Good job. But maybe I should have done it earlier, and then I would have gotten the stimulus. So anyway, that's a little bit stressful because we were yeah. hoping to use that 
both of our halves to cover next month's rent. Yes. And now I'm like afraid that it could be, you know, months before I get anything, but I'm, I'm just, I'm shaking it off. I'm shaking it off. Yeah. So that, I guess would be my suck. That's the one thing that I'm like, what the actual F I'm saying it, what the actual fuck is going yeah. on here? That's a big so, suck. It's a, yeah, huge, it's a big suck, but it's suck. More, more good than suck. So agreed. Absolutely. And one thing that I've learned from Avrin is true crime takes me away. Take me away. <laughs> but you know, it's a weird fantasy. It's not fantasy, not like, but you know what I mean? Like it just, it, you leave your body and your mind a little bit of your present worries. And so it's been fun today. We're doing uh, Marjorie Deal, right? And she's- Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Yes. And the um, pizza delivery bomber. Oh Yeah. Um, we basically, we had so much fun last week covering Tiger King, the docuseries. And since all anyone is doing outside of working from home and, you know, teaching their children from home and being parents and figuring out government money situations is they're binge watching TV. Yes. So we actually thought let's keep up kind of that, that train for another week. Let's pick another true crime docuseries. Same format as last time. We'll each take an episode and go back and forth and walk you through it. So we went for evil genius. Yep, Evil Genius. Which came out in 2018? Uh, Yes, the 2018. It's the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist. Yeah, 2018 is when it came out. Um, So just to start, this podcast contains spoilers. So proceed with caution if you haven't watched Evil Genius on Netflix yet. But honestly, even if you haven't, we're fun. Just watch us. I mean, just listen to us. I think maybe... You'll be right. L- listen to us. It might even be the better way to go. Yeah, because it's... Sorry, Netflix. I will still take your sponsorship. We loved. We, we love all of your content. Love all of your content. All right, so I'm starting off with the episode number one. It is part one, The Heist. And they open this episode just like just a tiny teaser of pictures of Marjorie, Marjorie Deal Armstrong from back from when she was like younger, saying when she was a child, she was like, kind of weird. You know, I hate to say weird, but she was like kind of loner. She's an only child. Not that that makes you weird at all. I know I have lots of only child friends who are amazing, but you know, she was not very sociable. And apparently her parents built her a life-size dollhouse. And that's when people came over for the first time when she was like in middle school or something like that. But she never really had close friends or was able to sort of, I don't know, have normal relationships when she was growing up. But as she, um, you know, became more of an adult, she was pretty and gorgeous. And they talk about that a lot. And I'm like, I mean, she's pretty, but everybody needs to calm the fuck down in this documentary because they're acting like she's like a, <laughs> a fucking supermodel. And I'm sorry, she is pretty. Um, but they, you know, they said she's magnetic and she's one thing to know about her is she was diagnosed, uh, you know, bipolar, manic depressive, amongst other things that they didn't really go into, but long line of mental um, issues going on. Um, She was, I thought it was fun. She, her only best friend who in the last like 30 years, she only spoke with her over letters. (laughs) Like they never really actually hung out, but they were, they both played string instruments in the um, orchestra. And apparently she was very good at that. And the friend, as they interview her, is like, she was, you know, she's really, she's very talented. You know, guys wanted her because she was such so good at the instrument, her instrument, but also she was hot. But who the fuck knows? Maybe she was just like, 
kind of crazy and was good in bed. Those, those string instruments are such a turn on, man. Especially like high school boys. They're like, you play the, oh, the violin? That's right. Are you first chair? Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> Just kidding. I, I, I did play the violin and, uh, you know, I, I, I was all right. Um, but not that good. Okay. So <laughs> but did it, did it make you sexy though? I mean, I feel like, um, for those sixth grade boys, just looking at my nerdy ass with my light mustache that I didn't wax yet. Yeah. I think, I think real sexy, <laughs> real sexy. Also the fact I that it. I, I ate lunch in the library, that another, another real sexy fact. I mean, I definitely came into my own later in my life, but like sixth grade, I was really deep into orchestra. I was like doing orchestra, but also taking lessons, you know, so that I was that. Nice. In sixth grade, I too was trying to do orchestra with the orchestra teacher at my school every two weeks, suggesting a new instrument as I failed <laughs> spectacularly at every single one I did. But then when I got into seventh grade, I discovered choir. And, and you're a beautiful singer. Moved, moved my, my musical skills that way. Well, let's just remind everyone, she's the one who sings rom crime. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so back to this horrific thing. So in 2003, um, it was August, yeah, August 2003, August, sorry, August 28th. I just want to be specific here. August 28th in 2003, a pizza guy named Brian Wells died in Erie, Pennsylvania after a bomb that was locked around his neck exploded. Minutes before he was seen robbing the PNC bank in that town in Erie. Um, as investigators came on the scene, local and national, of course, to figure out what the frick happened, they discovered on his person pages of notes for a scavenger hunt, detailing instructions for completing the heist and other steps that, this, that Brian, that Wells had, would have to follow if he was to disarm this huge, like bomb around his neck. And just to talk for a second, the bomb was like almost like a handcuff, but big enough for a neck. Uh, it, when he go, so we see footage of Brian Wells walking into the PNC bank um, with this bomb underneath a shirt. And so he looks really strange, like almost like he's wearing a football, you know, pads. He also has a cane, but apparently this cane, not apparently this cane was also a gun. It was like a gun a cane gun and later on they found the police you know whatever looked into it and it was loaded and could fire so um anyways so brian wells was on a scavenger hunt to try and disarm this bomb so of course his timer ended oh but also one one thing to note there was no way by design there's no way he would have ever made it to all of his destinations because the, because the timer was too short. This opened a very rare FBI major case. Um, so people had made bomb threats to banks, of course, but no one ever died like this in this most disgusting way. And certainly no one ever like head exploded outside while they were like, people didn't know if this was a real thing while he had this thing on. And because Brian Wells was not acting like anything, he was very nonchalant, even in the bank when he like passed the note to the teller, like give me $250,000. He took a lollipop, you know how they have lollipops. He put it in his mouth and he was like sucking it, just like chill. And so it, it was weird. The only time that Brian Wells started, to, the pizza guy, delivery guy, started to freak out is when the 
like the bomb, he could hear it going and then explodes. All right. So it's so sad too, because in the documentary, the footage they show him, he's like sitting surrounded by police, the bomb squad is on their way, or right. what will you? And at first it seems like he's not all that worried because maybe the bomb isn't real. Right. But then he hears something and he starts to noticeably, I and mean, you can see it because it's all on camera. Yeah. Noticeably start to panic and ask like, you guys, I, why is no one coming to help me? I, this thing is going to go off. Please help me. And, and then it goes off and nobody helped him. And it was yeah. And they said, they said part of the reason that the bomb squad wasn't there on time was because they shut down traffic and they couldn't get through, but it's pretty sad. So everybody was freaking out in the town. Several questions would remain unanswered for years. Who built that bomb? Whose plan was this? And honestly, the big one, why? Why? So this case becomes FBI major case number 203. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So, this is, oh, great. Yeah. So, this is episode one. And then at the end of the episode, okay. So, there's more no- notes found in the car. He was supposed to go from point A to B to C to D and to find the keys that released the bomb, right? So, never got there. Um, the cops were like looking for clues. They were, they were following the scavenger hunt and they found a note in a coffee can that told him to go somewhere else. And as they got to this one place sort of off of the highway, the detective on the scene noticed a minivan that was coming up. It was like a dirty blue minivan. And he said, you know, he was like, you know, that minivan always bothered me, but then they didn't do anything else about that minivan. Right. Um, So then the feds take over, the feds are brought in. They're, they have a, they get a search warrant for Bryant Wells' place, and no, there's no evidence that links him to, into the bombing, um, like and nothing, uh, nothing weird. He's kind of like a lonely guy, lives by himself. He's sort of, um, he's said to be like a kind of a nice guy, quiet. Uh, the only thing they found was a couple prostitutes numbers because Brian Wells loved the prostitutes. Excuse me, the sex workers. He really loved them. Uh, but that's the only thing that was slightly like um, illegal that they found. Uh, and then the saddest thing, in order for them to remove the device from Brian's head, they had to decapitate, sorry, they had to decapitate him because they didn't want it to go off because they didn't know how it worked. They didn't know if there was more explosives but I love the, I mean, I don't love, but the person who did it or one of the coroners or whatever, they're like, apparently it was done in a very caring way. But when you see pictures, he's like naked on the street. It's really sad. It's actually sad that they showed him naked on the street. I'm like, just give the guy a little fucking dignity. And also like, what about his family? Like you cut his head off. That's bad enough that he, that he was blown up. Yeah. But then you removed his head. Yeah. He, uh, they're pretty vocal. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, well, yes. And he, they said he was childlike in a way. Jean Hyde, one of Brian Wells, three sisters said, you know, was freaking out. She's like, why was there no ambulance there to help? Why was his head decapitated? His bat. And, and that was the saddest thing is his, his mom was so sad because his body was not fit for open viewing, which I don't necessarily ever want to see, but I know some people need that. So a coworker of Brian's from the pizza place, Bob Panetti, 
also a week later dies with uh, by unknown causes. Um, he was supposed to be have been interviewed by investigators on Monday, but didn't make it. He was a drug addict, so some of the the feds were like, "Well, maybe that's the reason, you know, why he didn't make it there." But this was global news. This, it, well, of course, because it's so bizarre and heinous and messed up. Um, so, task members of the feds shared pictures of the cane gum, cane gun, and the neck bomb um, on on the news, and they believed it had to be someone who there was like criteria. He's like, we think we think it's somebody who's a handyman who knew wood and metal. We think it's somebody who might be a hoarder. Um, there was a bunch of different like, you know, a list of uh, attributes. And so they're trying to figure out the device. They're opening, they finally get to the device. They're opening up the device. There's a lot of red herrings. Um, and they think that the scavenger hunt was a diversion. And let's see, it said it had only one purpose was to hold a bomb around someone's neck. So someone had to make it. Okay. Oh, so the then actual, the neck part, like it was a yeah. thing that somebody devised. Yeah. Okay. Someone created it from scratch. It wasn't something they bought somewhere. And they, the feds thought it had to, they pretty, they're pretty sure that they thought the subject could be someone that he knew, which happens a lot in all these cases, right? Um, sorry, most of them are like, oh, so, so at this, at the end of this little section, we sort of go back for a second to Marjorie. So we kind of get a little, it has nothing to do with her yet, but we end this episode where we're reminded that she takes herself to a doctor at 23. She's told she's bipolar, mania, pressured speech, and she suffers from narcissism. Most, in the, most of the men in her life don't last very long. There are at least five men in her life who died prematurely. Hmm. And then this episode ends with a frozen body in a freezer. And then I wrote, what? Because <laughs> what? Right. And then I'll just lead us right into part two, which is so cleverly titled The Frozen Body. <laughs> so this episode opens with uh, a 911, not, or not, not a 911 call, but a call to the Pennsylvania police barracks. On the line is a fellow named Bill Rothstein, who is saying that a woman named Marjorie Deal Armstrong murdered her boyfriend and that his dead body is in a freezer and that he's scared of her because he had kind of assisted her in hiding the body and getting it into the freezer. But now he thinks she's coming after him. And so they got to go pick her up and she's dangerous. And they're all like, the cops are kind of familiar with Bill because he is a longtime member of the community. He is the son of uh, the people who owned the Rolla Cola bottling plant in Erie. So they were really, really wealthy. And this episode basically becomes a, he said she did it, she said he did it, between uh, Bill Rothstein and Marjorie Deal Armstrong. And I don't know why, but I just think like Marjorie Deal Armstrong is such a great name. <laughs> I like saying it. Yeah. So he calls the cops. They obviously say, okay, uh, could you, since you're afraid and, you know, we need more information before we can just go busting down doors or whatever. Could you maybe come into the station and walk us through exactly what happens? So a large bulk of this episode is actual footage of Bill Rothstein being interviewed by police explaining 
that his good friend slash ex-fiance, Marjorie Dill Armstrong, had murdered her boyfriend, came to him in a panic, and uh, was like, no one will help me. I have to get rid of the body. I need you to help me. And how he was like, okay, well, let me just look at it. He's very kind of chill the whole time. Like, it's totally normal that I was like, well, let me see if I can get it out of your house and then we'll maybe go to the cops. <laughs> Meanwhile, the cops are dispatched or sent over to um, both Marjorie's home and to uh, Bill Rothstein's garage where he says the body's in the freezer. And then we cut to like friends of both. Oh no, sorry. Then we cut to Marjorie who's like, uh, Bill Rothstein murdered, and uh, the boyfriend's name is Jim Roden, sorry, so I'll refer to him as Jim Roden now, not just the boyfriend. <sighs> uh, but Bill Rothstein murdered Jim because he was jealous and he wanted me back and he didn't, he had to get my current boyfriend who I loved. They were together for 10 and a half years, her and Jim. And she says that uh, Bill killed him in a jealous rage because he wanted her back. He says that she killed Jim. He doesn't know why. And he's not really sure why he offered to help her other than that you know, she has mental illness problems and he's, but she's a really good close friend of his. They've been in each other's lives for 35 plus years and he was just trying to help. But then eventually when he realized that she like murdered him, he was trying to stall her by saying like, oh, we'll go get this and we'll put him in the freezer and we'll get a meat grinder and all this stuff. As he said, he did all, he purchased all those things, by the way. He said he did all that to stall her to figure out how to turn her into the cops. And he say, what? The whole time I'm like, yeah, you shady. Right. But then we cut to some, some friends of both of them. And so Bill Rothstein is described as eccentric. He was a lonely, rich kid who was bullied all the time growing up. He was a guy that truly believed that he was the smartest man in no ma in any room. And while his intelligence is unquestioned, he's also described as somebody who is really smart, but never finishes anything. So never graduated from college, never completed his pilot's license, never finished disposing of this body like he promised. <laughs> um, and Marjorie, again, as you mentioned before, was described as beautiful, a talented musician, and incredibly magnetic, but also incredibly intense. So her best friend that you mentioned from the first episode, and I wrote her name down somewhere, but I don't see it right here and I'm not gonna search for it, says that she was one of those people that after you spend an afternoon with her, so before they just started communicating in letters, she would need like to, to take a nap after she <laughs> Like she was that intense to be around. So I just wanna note that this phone call about Marjorie Deal Armstrong killing her, I guess, ex-boyfriend, as he puts it, since he's dead. He's like, boyfriend, ex-boyfriend. I mean, I guess ex-boyfriend since he's dead. I was like, Jesus, guy. Um, this comes three weeks after the PNC bank heist where uh, Brian Wells was blown up in the street after robbing a bank. And so the police are pretty much kind of like, wait a minute. The tower site, which is where the police, the pizza, the pizza <laughs> had been that Brian Wells had delivered a pizza to. So they have all these sites right within where they're trying to connect, like where he was sent on the scavenger hunt. The tower site is where he had delivered the pizza where the bomb had been strapped to him. That's like straight up outside Brian or sorry, Bill Rothstein's like house. It's like across the street. So they're like, 
this is the FBI hears about this frozen body and they're like, hmm, that's curious that there is a murder victim in the garage right across the street from the tower site from this bombing that just happened three weeks ago. Could that really be a coincidence? Me thinks not. So then they get into a pissing match with local police. Eventually the police are like, okay, you can interview Bill. So they do interview him. And let me find, sorry, let me find my notes. <laughs> and um, they interview him. They um, ask him a bunch of questions. He's real chill and smooth. They even bring him in for a polygraph test. And as the FBI guy, agent, sorry, the FBI agent describes it, <laughs> he practically falls asleep during his polygraph test. So he passes, which to me means, remember, we said he was smart, thinks he's smarter than everyone, especially the cops. Yeah. He probably took some kind of like- Like a sedative. Anti-anxiety or sedative medication that was going to like lower his heart rate so much that he could pass because there would be no stress spike in any of his answers. (laughs) Because I don't know anyone who's ever been like, I'm taking a polygraph test, but I'm falling asleep. Yeah. So- the FBI agents say even though he had passed the polygraph test, they still, they were, they were not convinced that he wasn't involved in the Brian Wells case. Then we cut back to like the friends talking. We're introduced to Kenneth Eugene Barnes, who's being interviewed because he was good friends with both Marjorie and Jim Roden and his girlfriend, Agnes Owen, who was also good friends. They were like fishing buddies of theirs. So they're interviewing them. They're asking them questions about their relationship. They said that, you know, it was very volatile. They had heard her threaten to kill Jim many, many times. Um, you know, that she could be as sweet as a dove one day and then a complete devil the next. And um, let me make sure I'm just keeping this all in. Okay, so then Agnes even mentions a time that she was talking to Marjorie and Marjorie had said that she had gotten away with killing a boyfriend before or the time no that's sorry wow spoiler alert Amron. <laughs> back on the wine before you do this but basically said something about this time when i was in jail and um kenneth and agnes are both like curious right they're like this woman is a little crazy and she tells all these crazy stories but she's saying she was in jail so they actually go to the local library and look it up and it turns out that in 1984 marjorie shot and killed her boyfriend Thomas while he was asleep on their couch. She fired six rounds into his body. She pled self-defense and was able to convince a jury that it was, he had been beating her. And so it was like a, a battered um, woman situation and that she was, it was self-defense, got off, which was very controversial but then went around after she got off bragging to friends that she'd gotten away with murdering the son of a bitch. She was just a, just a shithead. She's got a real pretty mouth. She's much like Vanya and I. She really, <laughs> likes, she really likes the F word and all the bad words. Yeah. Um, so, so now the police are like, wait a minute. She got, she's murdered another boyfriend and got away with it. And so at this time, they found the frozen body of uh, Jim Rod- Roden in the garage of Bill Rothstein. Rothstein is is cooperating with police. Marjorie is arrested. That when police go to arrest her in her home, they describe it as, have you ever seen hoarders? It's like that times 10. And they show footage of it. And it is, it's like very much what I imagine. I never actually watched hoarders, but what I imagine that looks like, which is just floor to ceiling junk. None of it makes any sense. 
It's just Feet. stuff everywhere. And feces, they said. Yeah, because she there were dead cats in there and all of that stuff. So now we're kind of getting into, like I said, this whole episode is a he said, she said, right? So Bill is saying she killed her boyfriend. I helped cover it up, continued to pretend to help to stall her while I figured out how to contact law enforcement and get them involved. She's saying that he did it because he's jealous, loves her. So then we get a little bit of background on the two of them and their relationship. So Marjorie came into Bill's life in around 1974 and they dated, they they would on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again. At one point they were engaged. They broke up. He actually put I I don't know if it was an op-ed or like something. He appealed to her in the local newspaper to get back together. They did. Then they broke up again and they got back together again and they broke up again. So a friend of his says that he's not, he said he never really understood Marjorie and what she meant to, to Bill Rothstein, that it was more than like what he felt for her was more than just boyfriend, girlfriend. It was like, she found her way into the deepest part of his psyche and she made a home there and he, she never left. And so that he really would do crazy things because he's described as being super friendly, a little bit awkward, but always, you know, a nice guy, really helpful, really handy, always willing to help, you know, a friend out clearly. Um, And that this just seems completely insane. And then we also learned that in the time of their tumultuous relationship, Marjorie, like you mentioned before, Vanya, at the age of 23, knew something was wrong with her and took herself to a psychiatrist and over the years had been diagnosed with a variety of mental illnesses. So bipolar, true manic, hypomanic, all kinds of medication she'd been given. And was clearly not not on the right medication or was not her mental illness was not being handled properly so then we cut to she's in jail right being like he's i'm gonna sue his ass and he's a filthy liar and he killed him and i had nothing to do with it and we're gonna find out blah 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 and then they show bill who gets to remain free on bail even though he clearly helped cover up a murder and hide the body but he's free on bail because of his cooperation with the police and he, they take us on his walkthrough with them through Marjorie's house, where he shows them exactly how he removed his body, like where he put the tarp, where he poured hydrogen peroxide because Marjorie believed that would get rid of blood evidence, how he had redone the stairs because they were covered in blood and cracked from the weight of a dead body going down them. Then he takes them to his place to show them. So then we brought him in this way. This is the freezer. This is all that. And he just casually mentions while he's doing this walkthrough and he's like, there was a bag of blood with a razor blade that you found, right? And they were like, yeah, what was that? And he was like, then he started holding up his wrists and he's like, I uh, attempted to commit suicide, but I couldn't go through with it. You found my notes, right? Like you found my suicide notes. And they're like, um, didn't know you'd tried to commit suicide. So then Bill directs them to the drawer where his suicide notes are. And strangely, the very first thing written on the note is, my suicide has absolutely nothing to do with the Brian Wells case. And everyone's like, that's not suspicious at all. Also, the whole time he's doing the thing, he's like, could you excuse me? Like when an officer's in his way, in a really like cocky way. And then he's like, do you have any more questions for me? Any questions? Does anyone have any questions? Like he's holding court with these cops as he's walking them through this crime scene that he was a big part of. So then another interesting fact 
that during all of this with the, the bank heist, the Wells case, Bill was actually in the middle of a family feud. So his siblings wanted to sell his, like his childhood home that he'd been living in since he dropped out of college rent-free yeah. and he didn't want to sell it, but he was like, oh, okay. So he tells them that he listed the house for $90,000, but he actually listed it for $250,000, which was way above the market value of the home. And ironically, the exact same amount on the note slipped to the bank teller, the amount right. of money wanted, which was $250,000. Then Marjorie straight up is like, fuck you, dude. So <laughs> she says, not only did he, not only did he kill my boyfriend, Jim, who I love so much, and we're together for 10 years, and you hear her like crying on this phone call. Yeah. But also you should know that his roommate, Floyd Stockton, is a fugitive who's wanted for rape in um, another state, and he's been harboring him for two years. So Floyd Stockton had lived with Bill Rothstein until the day after the PNC bank heist, when he abruptly moved out. But Floyd um, had uh, raped a teenage girl. Disabled teenage girl. Uh, who was disabled. So he was a child predator. and Jerk. So this is where things get incredibly frustrating for the viewer, right? So we find out, I told you about Bill passing his polygraph test but while falling asleep. Floyd is found, brought in, given a polygraph test about his involvement in the um, Wells case, the bank case. He passes it. And then um, both of them are cleared by the FBI. And they like show the interviews. They're like, we followed this. This is a separate case. This frozen body case has mm -hmm. nothing to do with our case. And they're officially cleared. They are not people of interest in the Brian Wells case. So then in January of 2000, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny. It's all just seems like bungled. Well, but you know what bullshit. though? I thought at that moment, I was like, if a woman was on this case, there, there'd be no way that they would let those guys go. Like, Absolutely not. Remember the, sh the sheriff from uh, the Kelly Cochran, Cochran case? Yes. If she had been the lead investigator. Yeah. Mm -mm. or the woman from um england who did the costco murder i mean i'm, yes. I'm listen maybe i'm being a little sexist here but it's like you don't if i was if i was the one on the scene and saw that blue van go away do you think i just feel like nah let's not think about that blue van i'd be like no we need to look in the area and look for blue vans yeah anyway, no I'm follow saying, up, i wouldn't let i wouldn't let shit go like a good woman wouldn't i'm just saying they say that you know bill was famous for not finishing things. It seems like these FBI guys are kind of the same kind of person as Bill. So Bill testifies against Marjorie that she had shot Jim Rhodes, a uh, Rodin, sorry, after an argument over money. And one thing that should be noted is that when they, after they found the body, right, frozen solid, it took four days for his yeah. body to thaw. So they did find out after, on the autopsy that he had been shot with a shotgun. That was the cause of death. So then Bill testifies that Marjorie shot him. In exchange for his testimony, Bill got a very good deal. He was only going to be charged with like corruption of a corpse and, you know, none of the big stuff. Like, what is it? When you like aid a murderer after the fact, you know, guess, like, yeah. so, and one of the um, conditions of his deal was that he can stay free out on bail until he's going to be sentenced for the lesser charges, which isn't going to be happening until the fall. This is January. So like the rest of the year, basically. Yeah. After she is convicted, whatnot, or, you know, convicted of killing Jim, 
um, or charged, sorry, charged with killing him. Marjorie is like ranting and raving and publicly states that Bill should be charged with the murder of Brian Wells. It's on television. Nobody looks into it. <laughs> he still remained cleared by the FBI, which baffled right. many people because as you mentioned, the FBI created a profile of who they thought was responsible. They said this person would be frugal, a pack rat, mechanical, be able to hide their violent nature, and may have had to move. It's literally like everything that Bill Rothstein was. So then we go back to like interviews with the friends. Ray Borkowski, who was um, one of Bill's best friends, in fact, Bill was like the best man in his wedding, says that after he, the, the trial and everything that he went through, Bill became mean. He used to just be this super friendly, like laid back, happy-go-lucky guy. And his, he was just now, it's like he wanted to bite something is how he described him. He also lost a bunch of weight. And then Bill Rothstein ends up in the hospital. And the FBI, who by the way had cleared him, hears that he's in the hospital. They're like, you know what? Let's just take one more chance here. Let's go see, maybe he needs to clear his conscience. They ask him again about the Wells case. And he says, I had nothing to do with it. Four days later, he dies. It turns out his body had been riddled with cancer and he had probably been dying the entire time, like the bank heist, the cover up of the body. Um, and so, sorry, I, I feel like I'm going on and on and on, but this, like I said, it's so freaking dense. So a year, so now it's been a year since Brian Wells was killed and no one has been charged. In an abrupt turnaround during this time, Marjorie, completely does a 180 and, and confesses to killing Jim Roden. <laughs> then we meet Gloria Bishop, who was an inmate with Marjorie, who described, you know, how she made a joke about how, like, don't piss off the freezer queen, you'll end up an entree. And Marjorie was like, you're a bunny, I love you, ha ha ha. So started just chatting her up. And she would describe how Marjorie had one face for the guards. So like she would stand in front of these, um, they have these like metal plates in jail that the girls would use as mirrors. And she would stand there and shave her eyebrows off for hours. And Gloria's like, you know, you want to shave your eyebrow off. It's like, zip, it's gone. It doesn't yeah. take an hour. And that Marjorie was basically putting on this act so that she could declare insanity. Yeah. And so that she was totally normal and very, very with it and smart and masterminding things with when she was like shooting the shit with Gloria and then acting like a complete insane person for the guards to see. So she pleads guilty to killing Jim Roden, but says that she um, was mentally insane when she did it. And she succeeds. She gets sentenced to um, a mental institution where she can be paroled after seven years for good behavior. And then my notes make no sense. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so then Gloria's pissed. She's like, she described, she's like, why would I stay in jail when I can go to the mental institution where the food's better, hang out there and totally right. get declared competent, done it a million times, watch me, here I go. So then we hear that um, Trey Borzileri, who is like the co-director and the the on-camera face of the documentary. So he is the, one of the creators, one of the directors, one of the writers, but he's the one that's like also in it, is fascinated by this story. 
And so he decides to write Marjorie a letter because he thinks that maybe she knows. He, like the whole world, doesn't understand why Bill Rothstein and um, Stockton had been cleared by the FBI, but it seemed entirely plausible that they were responsible or involved in some way. And she responds saying that she actually knows a hell of a lot about the Brian Wells case and that she would be happy to talk to him in exchange for some money or some help getting, you know, moved to a different prison. And that is how this episode ends. That's right. And so we're on to part three, the suspects. Um, This is right when she has the relationship with Trey. Um, So Marjorie was held at the prison in Muncie, Pennsylvania for the murder of James Roden. She teases info about the bank robbery case to the FBI in hopes of getting moved to a prison closer to Erie because something about her getting like her meds or I'm not really quite sure. Um, But even with her crazy mind games, the feds develop information implicating Marjorie as a major player in the bank heist, along with others, Rothstein and Stockton, as well as, I love the, I mean, her fishing buddy, Ken Barnes or whatever, was also a seedy local pimp and drug dealer. Oh, and he preferred to be called Cocaine Ken. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Such a class act, this group of folks. Yeah. And one one of the reasons um, we know that they were, that the Brian Wells, the guy who died, the pizza delivery guy who died, um, was connected was that he had they shared some hookers or sorry they shared some um sex workers and let's see if i i just want to get this right they called it a one-stop shop okay apparently so sex worker jessica hoopstick bill bill wells would pick her up driver to ken's who had the crack bill would make sweet love to her and pay her for sex she would then take that money go upstairs and pay for the crack, which Ken was selling. All three were very happy with the deal. <laughs> Apparently that's made, I don't know why that made me laugh, but it did. Um, Ken Barnes house. Apparently all these people were disgusting hoarders. It's just like, why? Dog feces everywhere. Hoarding craziness. Uh, second, So on the second floor of his house, Ken Barnes, cocaine Ken. Uh, that's where Sex workers would turn tricks. They also found a bunch of very sick dogs. That guy sucks. And the dogs had to... I hate that guy. Ken Barnes. He had... The dogs had to be put down because they were so sick, like they couldn't be rehabilitated. He denies being involved um, with the the, um, pizza bombing, but believed that Marjorie had a motive. She felt that her dad was giving away her inheritance after her her mother died. So remember she's an only child and apparently the mother always doted on her and they had money. Mom dies. Somehow she's very pissed because there was like a bank deposit box that was cleared by her dad who was like, yeah, you're not getting this money because he really believed. So Marjorie's father at this point was still alive. Um, they visit her dad, Harold Deal, and um, the parents didn't understand that she had a mental illness. After she started getting in trouble with the law, almost a million dollars, he, start, he started giving it away to people who needed it, like neighbors and people. He was like, 
she's not getting this money because they gave her a bunch of money to help her out of situations and they were just not having it. Um, the dad said she would come around if she wanted something. She didn't, he said she didn't know the meaning of love, which was a little just disturbing. Um, this is when she gave information to uh, either Trey or the FBI that Bill asked for two kitchen timers. So that was what was in the bomb. There were a lot of, like, like we were saying, there's a lot of red herrings. There was like a weird cell phone that made no sense. There were two kitchen timers in there that didn't necessarily make sense. In all in all, the bomb that was wrapped around the guy's neck was just a pipe bomb. Um, so she did know about the two, bom- two timers and nobody knew about that. So this is a real sort of, she's definitely involved in the case. Um, she was always talking about how much money she had. Apparently, she didn't trust banks. This is why, because and the PNC Bank is a place, by the way, where her mo- mother's money was taken from her father. So she really hated the PNC Bank. So, and that's the bank that Bill Wells was to rob. Um, Ken Barnes. Oh, okay. So, so she always talked about how much money she had. So her like fishing buddy, Ken Barnes, cooking Ken had people steal from her and they, they totally stole like barrels, a barrel of money or some crazy thing. Cause she was such a hoarder. Cause she kept, t- she would always just talk as her fish. She's like, I have got millions of dollars in my house. Crazy that Marjorie and Ken were still talking and neither one knew. Okay. So neither one of them knew that they were still talking. So this is like while the case is going on. So Ken's talking to police or FBI. Marjorie's talking to them. But Ken confessed that he knew who was the big schemer of it all. Um, Ken says he was in in on the scheme and that Marjorie was the mastermind. That's the end of that. All right. Yeah. Cocaine Ken, giving (laughs) us all the dirty deets. All right. So this moves us into episode four, which is called The Confessions. So this episode opens with Ken Barnes basically being walked in handcuffs into jail after confessing to being involved in the Wells heist. Barnes tells police there was a pre-robbery meeting the day before the actual incident at PNC Bank where himself, Marjorie, Bill Rothstein, Floyd Stockton, Bob Panetti, who remember was the coworker of Brian Wells from the pizza delivery place, and Brian Wells were all present. Ken tells Trey, the documentary filmmaker, that on August 28th, Marjorie picked him up and said, all right, today's the day. And he asked her, well, where's Jim? Because Jim Roden was supposed to be the getaway driver. And she said, oh, he's sick with the flu. Then the documentary cuts to a dead body in a freezer. (sighs) So then, um, sorry, excuse me. They go, basically what happens is they go to the tower site, so the place where the police, or where the pizza had been delivered. Uh, Brian Wells gets out, has the pizza. He like pulled up behind one car, set the pizza on the hood, on the the back of the car that was in front of his. And um, all the people I just mentioned were there. So Bill Rothstein, Stockton, himself, Marjorie. And it seems like, uh, the way he describes it, it seems like Brian Wells is waiting to get paid for the pizza. And then Stockton kind of like comes at him with the, the bomb and he starts to run away and they all just kind of like tackle and grab him and get this bomb around him. And, uh, they give him the notes 
They give him um, the cane gun. They say, if you get caught by police, tell them a bunch of black guys held you down and strapped this bomb to you. And they send him on his way. Then Ken Barnes says that he and Marjorie watched the robbery of the PNC bank from a car, like on a hill that was overlooking it, like passing binoculars back and forth. Ken then says that later that day when he saw the news, because obviously after they see him walk out of the bank, they're like, we got to get out of here and ditch the car and all the things you do when you're doing a bank robbery. Um, when he saw the news and what had actually happened, he actually felt really bad because he was told that the bomb was fake and that um, Brian Wells had been told the bomb was fake. And then he guesses at some point Marjorie and Bill Rothstein had decided to make it a real bomb. So. A-holes. I know. Also, what what assholes and like just like a show of our the fucking racism in this country to say, oh, just blame it on some black guys. That's like so fucked up. And because everybody in Erie, Pennsylvania, apparently is so racist, they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. What? But they will say law enforcement because he did get caught by the police, which is when they were like, oh, you have a bomb on you, and they put him down in the middle of the road, and everybody got backed up. And he did actually say. I don't know, I got jumped by a bunch of black guys. And the cops were like, "Mm -mm, we're we're not buying that. We think that maybe you did this to yourself or you have other people, but we don't believe your story. So now the FBI, after getting Ken Barnes's confession, they go to Floyd Stockton, who is currently in prison for raping a disabled teenage girl. And he gets the deal of a lifetime. They offer him immunity in exchange for testifying against Marjorie. He says that Marjorie was there and that Rothstein ordered him to put the device around Wells's neck and he did it. But as he was doing it, he could see the fear in Brian Wells's eyes and it made him incredibly uncomfortable and upset. So as soon as he had gotten the device on him, he just like walked away. Like he was, didn't stick around for the rest of it. And as he walked away, he was convinced he was going to be shot at any moment in the back. So Stockton and Barnes both say they're not sure who built the bomb and the cane gun. They don't know if it was Marjorie or if it was Rothstein. They don't know who wrote the notes. Could have been Rothstein or Marjorie. They are unable to give uh, the FBI any information on Wells' co-worker, Bob Panetti. And in fact, we will never know. They never figure out if he was connected, Mm. if his overdose was related, or if it was just a weird coincidence. And then they also say, um, they're also unable to tell the FBI how Brian Wells became involved, but that they knew he was part of the plan. So on July 9th, four years after the bank heist, Marjorie and Kenneth Barnes are charged with bank robbery. Prosecutors publicly state that Brian Wells was both bank robber and victim. So they say that he was a conspirator in the in the robbery, but also was murdered by his co-conspirators. Right. Wells' family is outraged. They show the press conference where the DA is like announcing all this stuff and they are screaming like liar and all this stuff at her, which a lot of the reporters were like, I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, So Wells would um, be listed in this case as an unindicted co-conspirator. Law enforcement say that other than Stockton and Barnes, they have another witness who saw Brian Wells leaving Rothstein's house the day before the robbery. And they know this because they almost hit his car as he like peeled out of the driveway. They were driving down it and they had to like slam on their brakes. Wells' family maintains 
his innocence saying that he had just been delivering, if he'd been seen at that property, it's because he had been delivering a pizza and that there is no way that he would have let this bomb be strapped to him knowing it was live, that he would have strapped it to himself, whatever it is that they're suggesting. And this is a really important thing to note. No murder charges. So as I mentioned, on July 9th, four years after the bank heist, Marjorie and Barnes are charged with the, the like armed robbery and all this stuff. They will not, there will be no murder charges filed against Marjorie or Ken Barnes because Brian Wells has been named a co-conspirator. And legally, you cannot file murder charges when like the death is the death of somebody who co-conspired with you to commit the crime. So they that cannot be charged with crazy. Yeah, I know they cannot char be charged with murder as long as he is listed as a co-conspirator. And more, most importantly, because they can't be charged with murder, they cannot seek the death penalty in this case. So I think that's important to remember. Okay. A lot, a lot, a lot of people, including Trey Brizzorier, I forgot his last name, but Trey, the documentary filmmaker. Borzillieri. Borzillieri, thank you. So a lot of people, including Trey Borzillieri, are not convinced that Brian Wells was involved in the plot to rob PNC Bank. Marjorie pleads, uh, pleads. they try to get her to take a plea deal. She's like, fuck y'all, fuck you, I hate y'all, I'm gonna sue everyone until you're dead in the ground. Um, and she decides she's gonna plead not guilty to all charges. And um, she was like really excited to go to trial to prove her innocence, but several doctors deemed her mentally unfit to stand trial because she wanted to like assist in her own defense. And they're like, this woman is incredibly mentally ill. Then we cut to Leonard Ambrose, who had been Marjorie's defense attorney back in 1984 when she shot and murdered her other boyfriend. Yes. And says, um. yeah. And so, so they, have, they have this great moment with him where he says, Marjorie is mentally ill. I had her committed four times and four times she was deemed mentally fit. He says she should never have been allowed to be a member of society and that this whole thing could have been avoided if she had just been like kept institutionalized because that's where she belongs because she's a danger to society and to herself and there is nothing they can do that can fix her mental illness. So after seeing that, you feel real good finding out that after a couple of months with like new drugs, a new combination, um, doctors give her the green light and the judge is like, all right, Marjorie, you're deemed fit to stand trial now. Wow. And then Marjorie, they have all these like phone calls between her and Trey. Like she's yes. in prison. He's talking to her. So then she gets this great bit of news. So do you remember child rapist Stockton? Yes. Uh, immunity for testifying. Well, it turns out he needs heart surgery. So he isn't even going to be able to testify against her. So she's like ecstatic. She sees this as a sign from God that she is going to be acquitted because all the people involved who are trying to point a finger at her, who's completely innocent, they just keep like getting dead and stuff and having to have life like surgeries and not being able to show up. So we go to trial. The prosecution produces several witnesses who saw Marjorie at all of the highest locations. So we've got, you know, the tower site, the McDonald's where he like picked up more instructions, you know, all those different right. places. And then they also bring out several of um, the inmates who were in jail with her that testify that she had confessed to masterminding the heist. And one who even said that Marjorie said that everyone of the 
co-conspirators involved in the PNC bank heist were afraid of the death penalty. So they had each other's backs and they would never, ever, ever give up the fact that Brian Wells was, they were gonna stand by the fact that he was a co-conspirator because then they could never be charged with his murder. So that happened. Now wow. we're midway through the trial. And um, I don't know if you guys remember Jessica Hoopsick. That would be Brian Wells' very sex favorite, worker, very favorite sex worker. He <laughs> came in to testify, and Trey was extremely excited to hear her testimony because he had heard like murmurings that she had information about the bank heist that had not yet been made public. But when she took the stand, she was noticeably nervous, and all of her answers were really, really vague. All she really said was that one night she was hanging out on Ken Barnes's porch and she overheard a group of people talking about robbing a bank and that for sure one of those people was a woman. So then she leaves the stand. Trey actually follows her out of court and asks her if she would do an interview for his documentary. And she says yes, but she fails to show up to their agreed meeting place and eventually sends him a text saying that she can't talk to him. Sorry, but she's not going to do an interview. Then we go back to the trial. Marjorie takes the stand. So this is where it's interesting and where it kind of shows you the brilliance of Marjorie um, and her, we remember we were mentioning her charisma, yeah, her ability to like really bring people in. So this whole time, you know, she just seems like this fucking evil genius, right? So she takes the stand and she talks about her abusive childhood and she's incredibly magnetic and she's, you see the reporters who are covering this. I don't know the name of the person that draws like all the cartoons in court, but the guy that's sketch been, artist. No, I don't know. Yeah, the court cartoon cartoonist. I'm calling him the court cartoonist. Yeah, he who had been convinced that she was this like all of his drawings up to the before her testimony had been like you know dark eyes, dark hair, crazy, you know, and even he found himself like softening what his caricatures of her looked like because her testimony was so convincing and all. All of the witness testimony against her had been so damning. Everyone was thinking this was like a slam dunk, slam dunk case. And then she testified and people were like, I don't know. She might have just saved her own life there. She might get off. Marjorie's ecstatic by her own performance. <laughs> so after 10 days of testimony, the jury goes off to deliberate. And after one and a half days of deliberation, they come back. They find Marjorie um, Deal Armstrong guilty on all charges. Marjorie is sentenced to life plus 30 years. So, okay, it feels like we have closure, you know, like Ken is in jail, Stockton they deemed the least culpable of everybody involved. So he got immunity, which sucks, but at least they like got her, right? The mastermind. Trey, the documentary filmmaker, continues to communicate with Marge like well after she's been sentenced to life in prison years and years and years and all of his friends and family are like why are you continuing a relationship with this woman like story done but he says what he finally realizes is the reason he's still engaged in communication with her is because he is hoping that she's going to come clean with him. They have a real relationship They're They seem to be super close. So after all of her appeals run out, she cannot appeal. There is no, nothing she can do to get out of jail. He goes to, to visit her and he basically says, I think that Paul, sorry, I think that Brian Wells was innocent and that you guys ordered a pizza and you 
strapped a bomb to him and you made him do this thing. She loses her fucking mind on him. Like she's talking about suing him. His movie is going to suck balls. And eventually she hangs out on, she hangs up on him. So he then finds out after the fact um, from several of like the lawyers and people he's talking to that the statute of limitations on murder never runs out. So if she ever admitted that he wasn't involved, then she could be charged with his murder and maybe be sentenced to death. So he's like, oh shit, she's never going to tell me. And a weird twist. Remember good old Jessica Hoopsick? Brian Wells. Yes. Remember her. She's really important, you guys. She gets sent to, to jail on some drug charges and ends up in the same prison as Marjorie. Oh my God. So Trey kind of hears about this, like, you know, from Marjorie and she's like, guess who's here? Blah, 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 blah. So unbeknownst to Marjorie, Trey reaches out to Jessica in a letter and she responds. And then the two of them begin having communications. So Jessica tells Trey about how, even though Brian Wells paid her for sex, that they actually had a true friendship, that he was somebody that she really genuinely cared about. Like he would take her to doctor's appointments and he would take her and her whole family to the grocery store and like help them out. And she said, quote, he was a good guy. There's only a few of them left in the world. She also tells Trey that Marjorie approached her with several other, like uh, like an inmate posse and basically threatened her and said, I'm going to send someone out to take you out. Marjorie, because prison is apparently a gossipy place, finds out that Trey has been talking to Jessica and when he comes to talk to her, she confronts him about it. And he says, okay, yes, I have been talking to her. Jessica told me that you threatened her. Marjorie says, no, she's a liar. Ultimately, though, Jessica gets a restraining order against Marjorie and has moved to a different facility. Probably and smart. Then, yeah, very smart. And then Jessica tells Trey, Marjorie thinks she's so smart. Well, I'm smart, too. <gasps> Yay. Then Jessica asks Trey if she could be interviewed for his documentary. They meet at a bus station at like really late at night because she's basically in a work release program. So they meet at a bus station near where she's working and she gets off late. So then we cut to uh, Jessica sitting in a car with Trey and she looks incredibly sad. You can tell she's like trying to hold back tears and she starts talking. She says, I want people to know he was innocent and that he was a good guy. Then Jessica Hoopsick confesses something. She says, one day she went to Ken Barnes's house where he, Marjorie, and Bill Rothstein were talking about robbing a bank. And they asked her if she could find a gopher, someone they could scare into robbing the bank who wouldn't just go to the cops after they forced them to do it. Um, They told her that they were going to strap a fake bomb to this person and they offered her $5,000. And she said that she knew a guy, this guy, Brian, who was a total pushover and would just do whatever they said. So the following week, Jessica took Brian Wells over to Ken Barnes's house to hang out. So she didn't like bring him over to hang out with Ken. Cause like you mentioned before, they'd go over there, I guess, but she brought him over specifically so that Bill Rothstein, Marjorie and Ken could all see him and know what he looked like so that they knew who their guy was but she never introduced them. And she said, uh, they asked her for his work schedule at the pizza delivery place. She gave it to them and then Marjorie paid her $1,500. When asked about the pre-robbery meeting that the FBI says they have multiple witnesses to say 
that uh, Brian Wells attended. Jessica says that she doesn't see how it would be possible that he was at that meeting because she was with Brian Wells from noon until he left for his shift. So she doesn't know when he could have possibly have been there. She also says that she feels a lot of remorse and guilt. So then Trey, the filmmaker, takes this information, doesn't, doesn't really say anything, but writes to Ken Barnes, writes him a letter and says, hey, just so you know, Jessica has confessed and we, I know what you all did. So Ken insists, no, she's lying, she's lying. They have some more conversations, interviews over the phone, but the more that Ken speaks, the more his story starts to fall apart and he finally admits that they never met the day before the robbery with anyone, but definitely not with Brian Wells. So now Trey, armed with both Ken's confession and Jessica's confession, confronts Marjorie. She denies it, says Wells was a co-conspirator and she will never be charged with his murderer because he was involved and that she's actually innocent and fuck you and I'm gonna sue you. <laughs> and, and she hangs up the phone. So the show kind of ends where it begins. We see Brian Wells. We, oh. see him, we see him be very publicly executed. And then we cut to, you know, how the end of documentaries where they like write the stuff. Yeah. We find out that Jessica Hoopsick gave birth to a baby boy shortly after the bank heist. She believes Brian Wells is the father and the photos, the likeness is undeniable. Wow. And then the final little white words on a black background are say that on April 4th, 2017, Marjorie Deal Armstrong died from cancer. She was buried in an unmarked grave not far from the prison where she spent her final days. Cut to credits. Cut to me being like, that was a bit of a hack sod put together documentary yeah well you know what's what's so crazy is i didn't watch number four i didn't watch the last one so all of this that you're telling me is like i'm like what oh my gosh and that woman hoops that hoopstick whatever hoopstick jessica you must feel like shit because she killed him not purposely not knowing but she did right she didn't know that they were gonna like she said she had I mean, most people, it seems like only Marjorie and Bill knew the bomb was real, even up until right. like up until the moment it exploded. The other people didn't know it was real. It was supposed to be fake. Wow. But she totally, I mean, and you can see the remorse, like when she tells him this whole story, she's like, I, I just, I, she's crying. And she's like, I can't believe that I, I did this to somebody that I really cared about. But they gave her crack, they offered her money and she was yeah. a crack addict and all this stuff. So clearly not thinking with a clear head. No. But mostly I think what's so sad is like to this day, the case is closed. Brian Wells has never been removed as a co-conspirator. No one has ever been charged with his murder and no one ever will be. Mm. And so it's ultimately, I'm just going to say it, a pretty unsatisfying documentary. Other than at least we feel like as the audience that we know the truth, but there's no justice. Right. No justice. So so boo. Boo to this rom crime. There is some rom in there, but... A baby I mean, there lives. definitely there's a there's yeah, a baby lives. I'm, Go with that. There's I, I a beautiful know. baby who is hopefully okay. Um, don't know any details about that. Uh, but <laughs> you know, it, I don't know. To me, it was just kind of like the idea that this, I guess, just unbelievably charming, 
smart, you know, mentally ill, yes, but also manipulative and cunning and able to just get men to do things for her. That's a rom-crime girl. We weren't wrong about that. But it is just such a bizarre, horrible story that is got, I'm going to say it, like the most unsatisfying ending of all time where you're just like, well, okay, thank you, Jessica, for telling us what happened. We can either as like viewers choose to believe you or not, but either way, there's still like no justice. And it's like a gross, heinous, like pre super meditated way to kill somebody. Yeah. To, that's a to death make it penalty. real. Like you should be given the, I mean, not, I don't believe in the death penalty, but like in States where the death penalty is a thing, a premeditated murder that you are forcing somebody to rob a bank and then you're planning on blowing them up afterwards. Like you, you'd automatically get the death penalty in a state that does it. And so the fact that he's, he's still listed as an unindicted co-conspirator. Well, that's sad. So I just feel terrible for his family. I think that's bullshit. We think it's bullshit family, but we appreciate the momentary distraction during this pandemic. The four Eight. hours that we spent watching this were four hours we spent not thinking about what the hell the world is. Yep, so thank exactly. you for that. That's thank right. you, Trey. Yep. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rom Crime. Please we- rate, review. And subscribe and tell a friend. And um, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and DM us ideas of stories we should do because clearly we're just now like watching television shows. Not think- there aren't other stories but we'd love suggestions yeah i think that's good i love it all right we love you guys